This Post Reports podcast is sponsored by Facebook. At Facebook, we continue to take steps to better secure our platforms. What's next? We support updated internet regulations to set new standards for data portability, privacy, and elections. Learn more at about.fb.com regulation. From the newsroom of The Washington Post. Hi, this is Ben Terrace coming from The Washington Post. Hi, Jeff. Miss Winfrey, Oprah. Hi there. How are you? It's Lisa Bonas calling for the post. This is Post Reports. I'm Martine Powers. It's Monday, September 14th. Today, the fires in Oregon, uneven justice for autistic suspects, and a strong message at the U.S. Open. I'm Samantha Schmidt, and I'm a reporter with The Washington Post, and I was sent to Portland over a week ago to cover the ongoing protests here, the Black Lives Matter protests, as well as a pro-Trump rally on Labor Day. And just after we had left the pro-Trump rally, we saw in the distance the smoke rising and the sky getting hazy, and within a day the wildfires had started spreading across the state. Within a week, the state went from being at at the center of the national conversation about race and civil unrest and dealing with the pandemic. It is now at the center of these historic wildfires that are spreading across the state in unprecedented ways. So the the unprecedented nature of these wildfires and how quickly they were spreading, that was clear by the end of last week. In the last few days, how have these fires progressed? It's been so hard, I think, for residents to figure out like exactly where the fires are going and, you know, what will happen for their communities because so many parts of the state have had evacuation orders ongoing since, you know, middle or early of last week. And there have been so many wildfires and they've only, you know, continued to spread. The wildfires have burned more than a million acres statewide, all the way from the southern border to, you know, Clackamas County right outside of Portland. And, you know, that number of acres is about twice the yearly average over the past decade. So it really is unprecedented. And, you know, the wildfires have led to more than 10 deaths. Dozens have remained missing. Tens of thousands have been displaced. And it's been chaotic in in parts because I remember on Wednesday, for example, I talked to folks in evacuation sites outside of Portland and in Clackamas County and in down in, in Salem, Oregon area. And a lot of people had, you know, been evacuated to one place. And then that place had to be evacuated and they had to move. And it's been it's been hard for a lot of uh, for some people to find uh, places to stay. You know, officials here have been they say that they've mostly been able to put people in hotels uh, because they're trying to avoid congregating large groups in, in shelters like they normally would due to the pandemic. But then you still see people in parking lots, still sleeping in cars in extremely hazardous smoke, you know, even last night. There were people sleeping in cars and parking lots and in tents and parking lots. But 
Is, isn't that dangerous if the smoke level is so significant that just breathing it in and just being in your car or being in a tent is in and of itself very dangerous? It is, definitely. And I was talking to people last night uh, over in, in Clackamas County at a shopping mall parking lot, and they were saying that they've had, you know, sore throats, they've had their, their eyes have been burning, they've just been kind of consistently dealing with this heavy feeling in their lungs from the smoke, and there's no real way to escape it. The first day, I mean, this is my fifth day in my car, I just wasn't here. The first day wasn't so bad, uh, but then it got really, you know, those hot winds, and then yeah. the smoke came rolling in, and that is the worst part. Your eyes are on fire, uh, you're breathing it in, your lungs, and uh, you just can't escape it. These masks don't help the smoke at all, and so... Carol, you're, you, were, you, were, you mentioned that you're, you're feeling you're like your voice voice is raspier than usual. What else are you feeling like right now with the smoke? Now oh, that it's my getting... Chest, <laughs> my heart hurts. Your heart? No, I don't have any medical problem. Do you have like a heartburn almost? Like a... No, it's just a pain in my... feels like in my... Oh. Maybe it's my lung. I don't know. But it's a pain in your chest you're feeling sort pain, of? Pain, yeah. And then yeah. The, when I go to sleep, I hear it go... Uh, uh, oh. Uh, uh. There's been a massive outpouring of support. People have just, you know, been showing up to these evacuation sites and leaving tons of donations and tents and blankets. I mean, even this family last night, they'd gotten a tent, they'd gotten a table and a rug, and they're they're making this parking lot their home. But it is still extremely dangerous conditions to be out there. And in terms of the people who are having to evacuate and figure out where they're going to end up, what groups of people are the most vulnerable right now? Well, definitely those people who, uh, like the people I talked to last night, who, who didn't have other places to go, who don't have the resources to pay for, for hotel rooms, you know, who don't have family to stay with. But the other thing is, is we're, we're just starting to see the real extent of the damage of these fires because in this part of the state, in the counties, you know, kind of in the more central part of the state, a lot of those fires are still ongoing. And so we don't know how badly hit those communities have been, but we know that in the south part of the state, we have been able to get into some of those communities and the fires have been uh, more contained down there. And it's become already so clear that the people that have been hardest hit uh, were people in mobile home parks down there. And I was in Phoenix, Oregon, which is south of Medford. And we were walking through uh, these mobile home parks that had been just leveled by the fire. And we were with a lot of families as they were returning for the first time to see the damage and to try to find anything left in the debris. And uh, it was it was devastating. And a lot of these families are Latino. A lot of them are Mexican uh, migrants who had, you know, been living here for years. And we were with this family. First, we, we were with uh, the sister of this family, uh, Beatriz Gomez, and she was with her, her children and her husband going back to their home. And she was just crying, you know, seeing this this mobile home that, that she lived in for more than a decade and had really become her home. Oh. She said she had everything she needed and and now it's all gone. And she was telling me also that she had actually canceled the insurance on 
the mobile home during the pandemic mm-hmm. because they were trying to cut costs. Her and her husband work at Red Lobster and they'd had their hours cut due to the pandemic. Oh, man. And so they were trying to find ways to save money and the insurance on the mobile home just didn't quite make it. And so now they have nothing and they are are really unsure where they're going to go next. So it sounds like for a lot of people who might already have been pretty vulnerable when it comes to the challenges of having to uproot your life when you need to evacuate all of a sudden, that the pandemic has put them in so much more of a financially precarious position that it's even harder to figure out what your options are in in the middle of an emergency like this. Definitely. And we also know that those same communities are the communities that have been hardest hit by the pandemic both uh, economically, but also by the virus. And I'm, I've just been thinking a lot about, you know, I, I was actually driving around Portland yesterday and I met a man who told me that he just got out of the hospital with COVID like a week ago. And now he was walking around the streets with a like a respirator mask around his neck and a and 95 on his face. He said he felt fine, but I was like really worried about him because his lungs are so vulnerable. And now he's walking around in this extremely hazardous smoke. Uh, it is a very kind of dangerous and scary combination of events that have hit this city and this state. And the extent of the of the damage and the the toll is is still yet to be known. And for people who have not had to evacuate yet and are in at least safer parts of the state, what are the conditions like for them? Even here in Portland, the smoke has been horrible. (laughs) Yesterday, it was blanketing the city. Everything was white and you really can't escape it. It's It seeps into your house, into your car. Uh, It makes it really difficult to breathe outside. And the city has been a ghost town uh, for the most part. A lot of businesses closed and people are, are really locked down inside. It's almost like the beginning of the pandemic again, except there's really no way for people to escape the smoke. So what is the outlook right now, both in terms of the the people who've had to evacuate and the disruption in people's lives, but also with the fires themselves? Like, are things getting worse still or have they started to settle? There are some areas where the fires have started to be contained. There has been slightly better weather conditions for firefighting. After several days of just heavy smoke uh, that made it difficult to fly in the air, you know, and and many days of of winds that were just helping the fires continue to spread. But uh, officials say that they they have had a chance to really start to at least try to contain these fires. And there has been mixed success so far. You know, it's still too early to get into so many communities. Yesterday, I was talking to a mayor who still hasn't been able to get into his town uh, because it's been blocked off. And he hoped that he was going to be able to get in by Sunday, by yesterday. And he, you know, just said it was just way too early. Like there were still fires burning. There were still firefighters in there. So in a lot of communities, like it could be a while before they get into their homes to see what's left. And in, in the areas that haven't been as hard hit, there are still evacuation orders uh, that are keeping people from going back. And the officials here have been pretty strict about limiting the public from going back into, into neighborhoods that are still close to the fire zones. So there's kind of they're kind of stuck in a waiting period right now. And we'll see. But I know down in the southern part of the state, uh, the fires have been more contained and people have started being able to go back to their communities more. Sam Schmidt is a reporter for The Post. 
journal entry 387. People don't understand that our lives in the grand scheme and the whole timeline of the universe, huh, our lives are nothing. So why not make that nothing something? Matthew Russian is a 22-year-old black autistic man from Virginia Beach, and he is incredibly creative. He is a composer, he's a poet, he's a photographer. Lindsay Sitz is a video journalist for The Post. His mom told me about how he loved watching the sunrise and being in nature and composing music based on nature. So he would go out to this, you know, this beach in Virginia Beach called Fort Story, and he would watch the waves and turn the sounds of the waves into his next musical creation. I miss coming into the house in the afternoons. I miss coming into the house in the afternoons from a stressful day at work. And you can hear the piano. And I just sit there, like I have the little stool at the end of the hallway, and just sit there and listen to him playing music. It's almost like hearing music every day in your life, and then one day you come in and there's no music. So on January 4th, 2019, Matthew got into a car crash. And since then, he's been sentenced to 50 years in prison with 40 years suspended, meaning he is currently serving a 10-year active prison sentence. So walk me through what actually happened that night and what led up to the moment of this car crash. There were actually two car crashes that night. The first was a fender bender. Matthew left his house a little after 7 p.m. on January 4th, and it was raining. It was pouring rain. I mean, you can literally hear the rain on the windows, on the roof. Matthew left home. He was on his way to Panera to pick up some pastries and visit his girlfriend who was working there. And as he was turning into the parking lot where Panera was, he got into a fender bender with another vehicle. When that happened, he panicked and left the scene of the fender bender. His family and psychologists that I've spoken to in my reporting of this think that he had a meltdown. And a meltdown happens when a situation is incredibly overwhelming um, and stressful. And so for Matthew, he sped off from the scene and was doing breathing exercises in an attempt to calm himself. That's why I was doing my breathing exercises, because I, I couldn't, couldn't get myself to breathe, breathe steadily. And... So what we're hearing now is audio from Matthew's interrogation um, the night of the crash relax and think things through, so I need to breathe. He made a U-turn um, because he felt like he needed to go back to the scene of the fender bender. And he ended up driving into oncoming traffic and crashing into two other vehicles. Miss Russian, um, Matthew's been in an accident. Actually, several. And I said, several? My husband left, went down there. He calls me. He says, I can't see Matthew. They won't let me see him. He's sitting in the back of one of the, the vehicles. And I just, I, I couldn't grasp what was going on. 
What happened to the people in the other vehicles? So the first car that he hit was driven by George Cusick. Um, His wife, Dana Cusick, was also in the car. George has been severely and permanently injured from this car crash. He is in a long-term care facility right now and has trouble remembering family, um, has trouble feeding himself, um, has trouble sitting up. And I was able to speak with Dana Cusick about what things have been like since the crash. I ask him questions. George, are you okay? I don't always get an answer. George, are you in your chair every day? I don't, I don't get an answer. He doesn't remember from one day to the next. So I was broken. He was destroyed. A third car was also involved in the crash, but the people in that car didn't have um, physical injuries that were as long-lasting or severe as the Q6. So after this crash, how did prosecutors decide that they were going to charge Matthew Russian with with crimes? And, And what was their belief about what transpired that night? After the crash, he got out of his car and one of the other drivers of the other vehicles, Thor Wentz, came up to him and was yelling at him. And he said something along the lines of, what the F are you doing? Are you trying to kill us? And Matthew responded to that um, by kind of repeating what Thor Wentz said. There are many different accounts um, and people that heard heard him that night, but basically he repeated, I want to die. You know, I was trying to kill myself. When I said I want, I want to die, I didn't I didn't word that correctly. I didn't want to actually die. When when that guy came up to me and confronted me like that, when I was in the state that I was in, um, what I said to him was, it was just, I didn't mean it, is what was what I'm saying. And what happened is police on the scene and the prosecution afterwards really latched on to what Matthew said that night right after this crash occurred. And that was a big crux of their case against him. Echolalia is something where autistic people repeat what they hear. I actually spoke with an autism expert, Marsha Eckerd, and she explained this phenomenon known as echolalia. And so someone says uh, a phrase, the person who's on the spectrum might repeat that phrase. And that can happen when someone is completely agitated. I, I, I didn't know what else to say. I, like I said, I didn't want to make the situation worse by cussing back at him. I didn't, I, I like, I, I really don't know how else to explain it. That night, Matthew Russian was charged with second degree attempted murder um, and also one count of malicious wounding. His case never went to trial, and eventually Matthew would sign a plea deal and would plead guilty to two counts of malicious wounding and one count of hit and run. During his sentencing hearing, his diagnosis of autism, of ADHD, generalized anxiety disorder, they were mentioned, but there was never really a nexus drawn between Matthew's autism and his behavior that night, his behavior after the accident, um, how his autism would have affected his processing, um, the processing of a very high stress incident um, and the crash afterwards. And so what parts of that 
would have been affected by his autism? Like, what were the moments where, when you know that he is diagnosed with with autism, that that affects our expectation of how he would have responded? Probably the first instance of Matthew's autism being a factor in his response was probably right after the fender bender, where Matthew went into a meltdown mode where he didn't know what to do and he left he left the scene and he was trying to use his coping mechanisms to calm himself he was doing breathing exercises as he was driving before being able to calmly deal with the situation and you know when we think about hit and runs um i think that we generally consider it such an egregious thing to do that if you hit someone you need to stay on the scene you need to see if they're okay you need to help call for help if if that is what needs to happen there. And so the fact that he ran away from the scene, how are we supposed to understand that? What I've heard from talking to many other adult autistics is really when you're in a meltdown mode, you cannot control what your body is doing. And I think for Matthew, it seems like he was in that flight mode where he was just like, I need to get away from this because I don't know how to handle it. And I think that When he made his U-turn and what he expressed during his interrogation was like, he knew that he had to go back. What was the sudden decision to make that U-turn? Like I said, I was doing my breathing exercises and it just hit me, okay, we need to go back. And that was why I made the U-turn. So when it comes to how law enforcement interacted with Matthew on that night, what are the problems that came up that are emblematic of larger problems with how law enforcement interacts with people who are on the spectrum and 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 Black people who are on the spectrum? 17 police officers showed up on the scene, and right from the get-go, they assumed that Matthew had intentionally driven his car into oncoming traffic. There are 17 police cars with their flashers going. There are 17 policemen. People are yelling. You can imagine what this is like for somebody like Matthew. It is completely overwhelming. Matthew was interrogated on the scene for over three hours and then was taken back to police headquarters and interrogated again. And police were saying that Matthew was suicidal and... Matthew was never taken to a hospital or assessed by a doctor. So, I mean, I'm not going to lie to you. You're, you're going to be charged tonight. You're going to have to go to jail tonight. Okay. Okay. And then how did that carry forward into the process of charging Matthew and his ultimate guilty plea? Matthew was never allowed bond, so he has been in prison since January 4th, 2019. Um, So he was never able to kind of have his community support, his community around him before his sentencing hearing. His family, you know, was against him signing this plea deal. And his lawyer at the time, Melinda Glupke, kind of presented this plea deal to Matthew and Matthew ended up signing it. Um, You know, he's over 18, so he's able to sign his own plea deal. But that also kind of has brought into question, did he really understand what signing the plea deal meant? I was confident in uh, uh, Melinda Glock's words. This is audio from a phone call between Matthew, who's calling from prison, and his mother. Uh, if I find out the deal, I'll get much less time or I can go home. Your understanding 
of the plea deal was that you were not signing guilt. You were signing to come home. Because you told me you weren't guilty of those charges. Right. So. I, I even said that in my, uh, in my closing statement. Before he what, what did you say? Because there was not an advocate in the room kind of just trying to translate for him what this plea deal actually meant for his life, there are a lot of questions about whether he really understood what what signing that plea deal meant. So in terms of what happened to Matthew, how is that emblematic of larger issues in the criminal justice system? I think that we're in this moment where we are all becoming more cognizant of the way that police interact with certain groups of people, um, including black people, including people with mental illness, including autistic people. And in reporting the story, um, I spoke with a number of experts and it just the overwhelming opinion was that there just isn't a great understanding of what autism is in the criminal justice system. And, you know, everyone with autism looks a little different. Just because someone can hold down a job, just because they are in school for engineering like Matthew was, it doesn't mean that they don't have issues with processing stressful events. It doesn't mean they don't have meltdowns. It doesn't mean that they don't have their own set of challenges. We're trying to reckon with inconsistencies within the justice system, the ways different people are treated within the same system. And it makes you wonder... If Matthew had been white, if he had been neurotypical, this may have turned out very differently for him. Lindsay Sitz is a video journalist for The Post. In July of this year, a change in Virginia law allowed courts to withhold or avoid... Hey there, I'm Dr. Maya Shunker, and I'm a scientist who studies human behavior. Many of us have experienced a moment in our lives that changes everything, that instantly divides our life into a before and an after. On my podcast, A Slight Change of Plans, I talk to people about navigating these moments. Their stories are full of candor and hard-won wisdom. And you'll hear from scientists who teach us how we can be more resilient in the face of change. Listen on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Acting someone of a felony if their defense attorney can show that the person's autism was a factor in the incident. Since that law has passed, Matthew Russian and his family are hoping that he will receive a pardon from the governor of Virginia. And now, one more thing about 22-year-old tennis star Naomi Osaka from sports reporter Ava Wallace. Naomi Osaka is a Japanese tennis player who was born in Osaka, Japan, actually, and raised mainly in New York and Florida. She was born to a Japanese mother and a Haitian father. And she is a now three-time Grand Slam champion. And she's also the highest paid female athlete in the world. Naomi Osaka staging a comeback to win her second U.S. Open title. The 22-year-old making headlines throughout the tournament for wearing masks with the names of different victims of racial injustice. Sabrina Fulton, Trayvon Martin's mom, and I just want to say thank you to Naomi Osaka for representing Trayvon Martin on your customized mask. Naomi Osaka did just about as well as as anyone could hope to at the U.S. Open. She made it to the championship round and and played a really hard-fought three-set match and beat Victoria Azarenka. (laughs) 
Oh, a point to end it. Naomi Osaka wins her second U.S. Open champion. Players were asked to wear masks, and on her masks she had printed names of victims of violence and police brutality. You know, George Floyd, Breonna Taylor, Tamir Rice. And she chose to wear these masks on ESPN. And, and the first night she did it, she was asked, you know, are, are you going to wear the same one every night? And she said, no, I, I have seven in case I need to play seven matches, of course, that it takes to get to the championship match. And pretty much every time and in every press conference, she was asked. You said from the beginning you had seven matches, seven masks, seven names. What was the message you wanted to send, Naomi? And she said, um, well, what was the message that you got? was more the question. I feel like the point is to make people start talking. She did achieve her goal in, in starting a conversation and spreading awareness. Ava Wallace is a sports reporter for The Post. for Post Reports. Thanks for listening. In the next couple of months leading up to the election, the news is going to be more relentless than ever. And it's important to make sure that you're getting that news from journalists you trust. Now is a great time to become a Washington Post subscriber. And because you're a Post Reports listener, you can get a great deal on a digital subscription. $29 for a whole year. Sign up at postreports.com offer. I'm Martine Powers. We'll be back tomorrow with more stories from The Washington Post. This Post Reports podcast is sponsored by Facebook. At Facebook, we continue to take steps to better secure our platforms. What's next? We support updated internet regulations to set new standards for data portability, privacy, and elections. Learn more at about.fb.com slash regulation.